Hi there, it's Francine Lacqua, host of In the City. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not gonna want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter and more. The deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media and entertainment and dives into the wins, losses and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube. <laughs> Welcome to In The City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the conversations and the stories shaping the world of finance. I'm Francine Lacqua. And I'm David Merritt. And we have a bonus episode for you this week, Dave. I hosted this all-star Bloomberg panel in Westminster at the Unheard Club, and we talked about the autumn statement, the economy, and frankly, why things should be better. Yeah, I was sat there in the front row, standing room only at the back at the beautiful Unheard Club. And yeah, you're right. It was an all-star lineup, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was a little bit daunting, but, it, you know, we had our usual co-host Allegra Stratton, we had our editor-in-chief, we had opinion columnist Adrian Woolrich, who's very, very, very funny, and our head of economics and government Stephanie Flanders. And it was kind of, it was just good banter. They disagreed, they made up, they disagreed again. Fell out, <laughs> and, made friends. <laughs> and then we had, we had um, you know, some blueprint of, of how to take it forward. We had this autumn statement. There was a lot in it, and at the same time, not that much. There were uh, tax cuts, but actually we're still seeing a lot of the tax uh, taxes at, at um, a, well, the highest in a long time. And it was probably meant to, you know, set out to dividing, put dividing lines between the opposition Labour Party ahead of the general election. So what did you see in it, Stephanie? And I saw an interesting combination. Obviously, the challenge for the Chancellor was to not do anything obviously political and irresponsible with the economy, within, as you say, a very narrow range um, of options, and ideally do a little bit of good that some people uh, would notice, while also leaving a thorny challenge for the opposition. And I think he's, um, though it's all, you know, you can see his workings, and it was pretty clear that what was going on, especially once people had zeroed in on that very big squeeze to public services, which had, in effect, paid for the, the heady tax cuts. But in terms of the individual measures, sort of over 100 very, mostly quite boring measures, some very expensive measures supporting business and giving that tax cut on national insurance, um, you know, I think he picked a lot of things that did look responsible, did look broadly kind of technocratically helpful uh, for the economy, while also leaving that that challenge for the for the opposition. So I think, you know, within his own, as you say, extremely narrow, constrained landscape, which I'm sure we'll talk about, does not bode well, particularly for um, next year's election. I think he did a decent job, and I think he achieved something else. Um, which I sort of noticed repeatedly through the day, which is to make people forget that it wasn't actually a budget. It was an autumn statement. But I think we can, we've already referred to it as a budget, and I suspect all of us will refer to it as a budget for the rest of the evening, and the pedants in the audience will just have to shut up. <laughs> Adrian, you're a great student of history. Where does this autumn statement fit? I mean, who does it make a difference to? Well, I think one of the interesting things about this, this statement is that we're basically back to Cameronism. That... Cameron and George Osborne were focused on cutting the state 
as much as possible. They were essentially small government conservatives. Um, Left-wing, leftish on social policy, but really quite right-wing on economic and social policy. Uh, then we had this long period of disruption in which you had the return, the supposed return of big government conservatism, the idea that the conservatives could incorporate more working class voters by having a more active state, bigger public spending, which called Bob Morris Johnson was in, was in favor of. And now we see we're going back to uh, a world in which the conservatives basically stand for a smaller state. They want to cut taxes as much as they can, and they are, uh, they are allowing inflation to do the work of cutting the states. This, the state, this is a big constraint on the size of a lot of spending departments. They're taking a lot of money out, out of spending. So this is a very classic um, conservative, Cameron-style conservative policy versus quite uh, a classic sort of Labour Party policy in which they say they want to have um, a more active state, but not yet. Um, they can't afford it now. They want to be responsible. So it's almost as though this intervening period of Brexit, disruption, a change in the nature of parties, Corbynism, Johnsonism, have been written out of history. And we're back. <laughs> Some people might want them to be written out of history. So we're almost back to a pre-Brexit world in which the Conservative Party sees its job as shrinking the state, not incorporating working class voters very much, appearing to, to, to its base. And I think another interesting thing that happened today was these migration figures. Um, you know, very significant increase in migration, almost seven, seven, 700,000 people. Again, it's as though Brexit never happened. You know, we voted in Brexit, people voted in Brexit for more money for the NHS and control of immigration. We have um, a squeeze on spending departments, not necessarily the NHS, but the NHS is obviously in big trouble and, and, and quite a lot, of, a lot of immigration. So it's almost as though the politicians aren't listening to, to what they were told in, in 2016. So I think it's a weird, you know, rever you know return to 2010. Allegra? I slightly disagree. Okay. Um, <laughs> 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 there you go, <laughs> um, In that, it's, it's both, which is they cannot afford to not take or try to take some of the red wall with them because if they do that, then they've got an electoral problem, just mathematically. First rule of politics is learn to count. I think they've got an electoral problem, whatever happens. <laughs> so, so, they, so yes, but in order to try and, try and answer the exam question that is the next election, they have to try and bring both those bits of their new coalition post the 2019. And, and you did see an attempt. Um, you saw uh, a number of policies like the Freeport deduction going from its okay. five years to 10 years. That's a side, you know, the, the heartland of the red wall. Um, the Red Wall has a lot of uh, older voters, so that pretty generous um, triple, triple lock pension boost was partially aimed at those groups of people. Um, there were a number of, of efforts. I, I was interested in that because obviously when you see the David Cameron appointment, you, you do wonder, you do think, like, is this, to your point, um, Adrian, you know, is, is, is this a sort of retrenchment to the Blue Wall? Um, it, it can't be. They've got, they've got to try and do both. And I think you did see yesterday in Jeremy Hunt's comments um, elements that were aimed at that constituency. 
obviously the full expensing. You know, when I was a TV reporter and would spend a lot of time, uh, indeed, in a in a December election, expensing. In, <laughs> expensing. Um, I, I couldn't possibly comment on that bit, but certainly going around the Red Wall in December, God help me, in 2019, I think it was, visiting lots of factories. You know, that the full expensing will right. have, will have a role there. So. I, I, I know what you mean about, you know, oh, especially with the sort of prognosis for the next few years on the public finances, it looking like it feels very 2010 on Corum's But I think it has to be, it, you, can, you cannot ignore what has happened in the last seven years in terms of that sort of, you know, re- realignment is what we, we called it at the time. John? Well, I'm going to try and discredit Adrian too. I, I, just, just on the basis of 25 years of doing that. But the the basic starting point. I, I came in this morning from America. If you if you if you look at it from that point of view, really this difference between Labour and Conservative, I get back to what what Stephanie said about constraint. Is I think the rest of the world, and they look at it, they feel somewhat reassured. You've had a a budget which is looks kind of grown up. Fine. You've had a response from the from the opposition, which again looks grown up. Fine from the point of the rest of the world, and Britain, I think, through those eyes, and maybe this is reflected a tiny bit in those migration things, just looks as if it's slightly returning to normal. And that yes, there is a difference between the two parties, but most people outside this country think Starmer, Sunak, that there isn't. Yes, there's a bit there, but the constraints they're both operating under and the fact that they're both relatively boring men of a certain age means that most people look at it and think this wild era is over, which that bit I do agree on. But I don't think it's a... It doesn't feel like such a massive ideological divide that there was before. Stephanie, what does it actually mean for the economy going forward? It wasn't great news in terms of growth. No, and actually what was striking about it... So, of course, you've got the... Household, you know, there's a lot of discussion around the sort of first parliament where household incomes will have fallen. Um, you, there's some very depressing numbers. The Resolution Foundation has pointed out that there's about nine million younger working age Britons who've naturally never lived in a Britain that had sort of rising average wages. We're not going to be back to the sort of pre-cost of living crisis, real living standards until 2027, according to those numbers. So it's all pretty um, bleak. I think the interesting thing, and maybe it feeds into some of the conversation around, you know, whether this was a set, whether there were elements of this that were setting up or at least allowing, preparing the way for a spring election, is even on the economics, um, the idea that things are going to feel better in a year's time, it's not entirely clear. This may be almost, and and it's certainly the, the political risk in yesterday was this sense of we're turning a corner and as everyone's aware you know there's a risk there because a lot of people in Britain will not feel they're turning a corner and worse than that they may actually feel worse next year and if you look into the details of the of the forecasts you know there's one sort of basic fact about this we've had this whacking great interest rate rise and Mm. there's been some sort of questioning of you know how come the economy you know we haven't had the kind of immediate hit to the economy that some were expecting you know part of that certainly on the consumer side is that the sort of good news associated with higher interest rates people getting more savings income has been quite quite quickly realized and we even discovered in the states if you're not getting a higher interest rate from your bank you now find it easier to go to another one and yet the, the really bad news that we all know is coming for millions of households mm. is actually you know we're barely halfway done in terms of the resetting of mortgages so if you're a sort of wily person thinking about actually what's going to affect the way people feel today about their finances many millions more people will have reset their mortgages you know in october than in april or may 
it, was the autumn statement inflationary? Or did they kind of get away with, with not Let me think. It. Now, this is one thing that I, <laughs> I should have got more into the weeds on, but I was quite struck by the, Jeremy Hunt's assertion that the OBR was said it was, the measures in the autumn statement were not inflationary. And I think the way he had managed to get around that potentially was some of those duty changes, which actually reduced the headline inflation rate. Now, so there'll be people in the audience who will be able to quickly well, check this. It's, it's inflationary but, in the sense that it's using inflation to do the dirty work of the government. Yeah. But, you're using it, inflation but, to but, squeeze the spending departments, and yeah. you're using inflation but, to bring more people into the tax system and therefore increase your tax revenue while pretending to be reducing well, it. Well, it's accepting inflation and it's making money from the inflation. It's, it's more also accepting but it, using, exploiting inflation for if you think about cynical political ends. But given <laughs> before the, before the autumn statement, given the freezing of how the thresholds, we're going in a really exciting direction, folks. I can see you're all, you're, you're really up for this. We're going to go right into the weeds. But before before Jeremy Hunt did anything. You actually were obviously raising the tax take, taking money out of people's pockets, and in that sense, it was it would would have, there would have been a sort of disinflationary effect. What's happened is he's taken he's actually put some money back into people's pockets, or at least given the money that they would otherwise not have had with this national insurance. So you could say that was inflationary. I think what is interesting is I, I wonder how hard it will be. Potentially, you know, politicians are very easy, find it very easy to live with inconsistency, one finds. But we have had months and months of these debates over public sector pay and strikes where we have the, the Chancellor has said not entirely accurately, we can't give more money to the NHS nurses, we can't do this because it's inflationary. Yet it's okay. You can't that you can't say that you can't say that, and then also say you're putting lots of money into people's pockets. So I think there is a bit of a dissonance there. But I'm sure on the technicality, he was speaking the truth when he said it was not overall an inflationary autumn statement. I mean, I, I should rephrase my question for Adrian: Is is it going to complicate the job of the Bank of England? Um, no. I mean, I think that the point about a safe pair of hands is, is, is correct. I think there's a general confidence in amongst the economists and the sort of the great and the good about, about what's going on here. But I, I, I just want to uh, make a sense of the, 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 the Cameron comparison, going back to the Cameron uh, era, because I think there's more truth in it than my colleagues think. Um, but one thing is that the, the, the Cameron era was in, in many ways an era of of sort of optimism. They thought that they could squeeze the state, but the private sector would expand and take over and people would get richer. Um, then we had all the, the big society, the, 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 the charities could take over things. Then we had all these, the, the, these, the, these eruptions because of the Brexit thing. And what have we got now? We've got a situation in which they're continuing to squeeze the state, public, public, the spending departments, the big spending departments, apart from the NHS, they're trying to continue to squeeze that. But there's no... And they're, they're look, trying to do something about our dismal productivity. But there's no real optimism there. What you have behind all this is a stagnant economy that's failed to solve its productivity problem, uh, an aging population, a need to suck in lots of poorly educated foreign workers to add to the, um, you know, to, to, to look after old people and to do lots and lots and lots of service jobs. So whereas the Cameron era was a, an era of, I think, misguided, but of real optimism, this is basically, you know, trying to make do, make the best with a pretty awful economic outlook and trying very belatedly to do a little bit about um, productivity while still relying on cheap labor. 
let me agree with you then. Okay, if you didn't let me disagree with you. <laughs> no, no, is, I love I it. Think, I think, you know, it is, it, yeah, right. Um, it is, it, it, um, it, so yes, um, it does look like whoever wins the next election yeah. is going to mess. be doing austerity Mark 2 or Mark 3, however you, you cut it. I think the thing that um, we want to reflect on looking back at 2010 is whether that austerity was the right austerity, if that's a sort of particularly helpful way of thinking about it. Certainly, when I was a TV reporter, most of the reporting I ended up doing was around the fact that they did these sort of invisible cuts, pushed them out to mm -hmm. local government. And actually, the huge crises we then went to have put Brexit to one side for a second were around drugs, were around violent crime, yeah. were around old people social and care. about social care. So actually, and we're doing it again. you had this period of yeah. optimism. Um, I don't remember, I, <laughs> as a reporter, I don't remember it feeling very optimistic. I remember, you know, a lot of kind of anxiety about that huge reduction that they did. Of course, that phrase, fix the roof while the sun was shining, yeah. I think that, 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 that they do. They think that actually building up that sort of war chest enabled them to go into the pandemic and then go into the war yeah. in Ukraine and then spend down on furlough and so on. So I think there, there is a sort of complexity to all of this. Yes, they are retrenching if they win the next election. Labour will have a similar job on their hands, but they think it's because of this sort of, you know, the big bazooka of all the, you know, the Hoover Dam of Dosh that went out to, to, to use um, Boris Johnson's phrase of the time, you know, when they spent it on furlough, when they spent it on sea bills, bounce back loans, eat out to help out the lot, you know, propping up theatres, yep. all of that extraordinary amounts of, of spending. So there is a kind of, there is a sort of question around, you know, once you have spent that much on those sorts of things, paying people's wages for so long, paying people's energy bills, we, I mm -hmm. think we forget. Um, any government is going to find it difficult to, to move on from that if it is the case that we are going to go into a period where the next parliament is, is, is lower spending um, and we assume that they will ring fence NHS, they will ring fence yes. education, difficult choices for, for the Labour Party as well. What is what is the right way to do it? Bearing in mind as well that those those local government cuts have happened already. So that so that kind of um, those the low hanging fruit to use the horrible <clears throat> phrase, you know, it is not on the tree anymore. What do you do next? Um, and you know what what I think Rachel Rees was asked about it this morning on the radio. You know, what 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 do you do, John? How do you see the blueprint? I mean, if you look at the the UK and how it grows, if it grows, like how would you compare it with the US in three four years? I think the, the, well, the, basically, there's a kind of there is a kind of basic comparison. You look at the U.S. What's amazing about the numbers is that the private sector, Adrian's actually written about this. The private sector is doing amazingly well. It's doing staggeringly well. But the public sector, going back to my earlier point, is is a complete mess. So you have the Trump versus Biden scenario and everything around that. The politics of America have seldom looked more dysfunctional. Congress running out. People worried about the debt in a way. If we think Britain splurged a bit, it's nothing compared with you know, the money that's been pumped out recently in America. So all those things have happened. But the basic idea of productivity, of the private sector pushing ahead, even the so slightly ludicrous row at a open AI is a memory or a reminder about how much further ahead America is in these things than other places. So I think it is, it's, there is, there, the, America has got this way of saving itself 
which is that private sector. And just, to, but to push back a bit, as you know, there's quite a lot of sort of critique of that view of the US, like through the through the decades, where they're they're very good at taking, for, well, for private sector to take the credit for things that actually had involved quite a lot of public sector yeah, investment. Yeah. You know, every failure is public sector, and any success is immediately owned by the private sector. And there's lots of, you know, you Mariana Musk. You wouldn't describe the American public sector as a well, success. Well, I'd explain the politics as being a total shit show, if you don't mind. But it the, is the but it's, it's the not. Politics. That's slightly different from the public sector and the money that's going in. If you look at Biden's, you know, there may turn out to be an enormous amount of waste involved in the infrastructure bill, the chips bill, the IRA. But that is actually money that's largely going into private investors' hands and manufacturers who are actually, you know, and, and, and innovators who are going to take that money. As I say, some of it will turn out to be in the wrong place because they've been, they have quite an uh, ambitious way of trying to push that money into different parts of the country. But it is almost entirely going to the private sector and giving a lot of this dynamism and momentum. I mean, just to make you feel a little bit worse, 2.6% growth, I think the US may be this year, yeah. versus 0.4 for the UK. And what's really striking about the difference is that you've also got 2.6 or thereabouts growth in productivity output per head, as well as the growth in output in the I US. I think our productivity Whereas, per capita is going down. No, no, in the US, yeah. yet in the UK, it yeah. was actually the last number was negative, but I'm just no. going to round that to zero. But yeah, it's... There's <laughs> also one, one issue. I mean, Allegra, and some of Allegra, that is the Biden money. Yeah, no, some, no, and there's definitely also this thing, if you look at green jobs particularly, and Allegra's very good on this, you look at the, the, the amount of money that Biden has just chucked at green. That That is the IRA and the all the various different bits of that. But it's getting to all your down. brilliant private sector but, yes, people. Yes, it is, but it's also laid down a challenge to the European Union. They, they responded, and British, I think the amount of money Hunt put in this week looks paltry. One of the striking things about the, uh, <coughs> the response, the Labour Party's response to uh, the autumn state was how petty or silly it was, really, or not quite silly, but, but, but petty. Um, where Can Rachel you Reeves, the difference? Rachel Reeves came back from Washington a few months ago talking about securinomics and the Green New Deal and spending lots of money to, to you know, the active states with lots of money around, you know, to, 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 to generate growth. And now the Labour Party is no longer talking about that because, quite simply, there isn't the money around. They can't, they can't do that sort of thing. So whatever Biden uh, has, has been doing, and he's been doing very, very big spending, the Labour Party won't be doing that. So one of the things that this budget does um, is, well, not, that this autumn statement does, is confirm the fact that the Labour Party doesn't really have very much room to manoeuvre. It's going to come into power at some point. Uh, next year or uh, uh, early in the following year. And it's going to have a whole bunch of spending departments which are being squeezed. It's going to have the highest tax take since, you know, since, since, since the 1950s. It's going to be in a desperately poor situation. There's a very interesting comparison between when Blair came into power, the Conservatives basically left him an extremely good legacy on which he could build. And the, Tory, the, the, the Labour Party is now going to come into power with a dismal economy, dismal productivity figures, dismal public spending figures, an incredible feeling of gloom across the country. And, I, you know, as far as I can see, you're going to have two mainstream parties that are going to look played out. And I think a big surge in the right, in, in, in terms of the sort of Farage's right. And I think Corbynism, Corbynism returning. Yeah. Um, against a, a sort of stagnant and failed Sorry, Labour Party. Hold on, hold on. Even I have to stick up for the UK. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, 
the same. Start. So, this, <laughs> so uh, let's get onto the rise of the right uh, in, a, in a second. Um, I think Rachel Reeves is probably doing, and Kirsten are doing what they need to do right now, which is if they were tempted to say, we're going we're gonna to do IRA, 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 I've learned. Um, mm. if, we go, if we were going to do that, it would be a, it would be a trap. And so, you know, I'm sure she, you know, you saw this debacle over the 28 billion and lots of people in, in, in the climate world, you know, saw this as the kind of great, great, great green hope. And then even the Labour Party with even Ed Miliband um, at the forefront of this movement was having to say, uh, well, no, we won't spend it immediately. We'll do it in the middle of Parliament when we've got the money, if we can. And when borrowing costs come and down. And borrowing costs come down. Yeah. And also we'll do it, we'll seed it, we'll, we'll be the seed money and the private finance will do the rest. So very different, really. And not, 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 not wrong, but, but a very different prospectus. But that's because if she goes any further on, on you know, spending, she, she immediately um, brings up that kind of Greg Hans, as was back then Tory chairman, attack that they are, that they are you know, going to waste people's money. And to Stephanie's point, you know, do you really want any government spending 28 billion when the private sector might might actually have a better idea on how to grow some of this 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 low carbon tech? So that so that I think to be fair to to them, I, you know, whether they immediately get into power and say, haha, only joke, joking, I don't think they can do that either. Um, or not only joking, but you know what I mean. No, you know, we didn't mean it, and we think there's. I don't think that's tenable either, because there's a there's a trust there's a trust thing there. So it's going to be what they say, which is middle of any Labour parliament, they'll they'll inch up to spending it. I think on your your there's obviously many more things for for, for my colleagues. Yeah, but on your point about the right, because we talked about this earlier, and we've obviously seen the results in in Holland in the last mm-hmm. 24 hours. Let's just think this through, though. You know. <laughs> If the Tory party lose the next election, it will depend on you which... You can take end- out the if. OK, sorry. <laughs> All right. In your scenario when the Conservative Party lose the next election, mm-hmm. um, what, who they have left. So what is the mm-hmm. nature of the rump MPs that are left? Because that will determine, you know, are, are they red wall, are they blue wall, are they both? So that will determine some of that. And then sec- secondly... Um, uh, for, so you're shaking your head. This is anyway. <laughs> no, I'm just looking for the various people who are hoping to be, or at least one person who's hoping to be in the rump. <laughs> <laughs> Returning to the rump. I said yes. I said, um, uh, then, then you've got if you've if you've got the Conservative Party then in opposition, mm-hmm. they will probably at this point be having to go further to the right if they feel that that is the space that is being vacated for them by the then new Labour government, maybe even coalition government of a different sort. So I just don't think we can say for certain, especially given part of what the the, the, the Dutch result is about, is about wanting a Brexit. I know, you know, it's a, it's a difficult, it's, you know, most people in this room, I'm sure, think Brexit was wrong. But that is what, that's what that the, result is about. The migration figures, we're talking 700,000 people, enough people to fill Glasgow or Newcastle. That's a hell of a lot of people in a country that voted to bring immigration under, uh, under control. I just think we are creating the basis for enormous social discontent. And this narrowing of the political focus 
of these two parties that, that John is a representative of the global oligarchy here, <laughs> praises, is creating a huge but, but amount Adrian, of potential frustration but, in the political that, system. That would be completely true if you didn't have the government talking about stopping the boats. Now, you are right. They're talking. not yeah, Sure. But it is not the case that you, you have a sort of vanilla, beige, centrist um, establishment loving. Right. And there's nobody trying to do anything on this front. You, 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 are, you are right that they are, they are right now struggling and it is yet to be seen how they actually accomplish their, their aim to stop the boats and that is where your oxygen for this movement will come from. But at the moment you can't, you know, another panel, panel would be saying they're too right-wing on immigration. No, well, I'm thinking of legal migration figures, you know, but which, they, are, they which never, are very they, big and because basically because we have a low skills, low productivity, aging economy, which is sucking said, in yeah. large numbers of immigrants to do work that the, 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 the indigenous people will not do. And that is creating a very unstable but they never political said, basis for the political system. The Brexit vote was not about no immigration. The Brexit mm. vote was about controlling immigration. Now, yeah. I agree. It wasn't about and the people who voted for well, control did I not mean, vote, is, no. I don't mind if it's 700,000 a year. I don't think that's true. It, 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 so, so, actually, if you spoke to Boris or Michael Gove at the time, and I, and I think, I think it, is, mm. it was a, a, I remember thinking at the time it was a problem, that they were not being clear enough that they, because they're economic liberals, okay? They, mm -hmm. they, they shapeshift too, but, but at the time mm -hmm. they were, it was about control, it wasn't about reducing, especially somebody like Michael Gove. Now, I agree that that was not, and I remember thinking at the time, this is not being clearly expressed and you will have a problem when people have interpreted this election result as a... Uh, one thing when, 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 when the establishment is interpreting but, it in another. But if you take the 700,000 people and you're not in. building houses and you're not building Adrian. infrastructure, you're creating an enormous amount okay. of frustration. Adrian, can I ask you this and then I want yeah. the, the same question Sorry. to John. The, the, the UK still has a lot going for it and I guess there's money from abroad waiting to be deployed with a stable government. What does the UK in your eyes right now compared to the rest of the world and Europe, what does it have going for it? Me? Yeah. I'm the wrong person to be, I'm the wrong person to be answering. I think, you know, I think we're a poor, Rule low productivity, stagnant country. I think we have a very good university, a very good university okay, sector, a very fine. good creative sector, yeah. um, a, uh, a well-educated elite, a financial okay. system that was good and okay, is failing. Place, it. Right? But um, all of those things, uh, you know, we, we have a uh, a concentration of wealth and creative activity in a very small chunk of the country yeah. amongst a very small group of people. The great question is how to disperse, disperse yeah. and spread that, 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 that wealth and opportunity around. We, we fail to do that. We're going back to Cameronism, I say, which, which pours money into, yeah. the, in, into the rich, squeezes the, the welfare state and creates ultimately a populist explosion. Uh, John, under different policies, <laughs> with, with more, more stable... Yeah, Adrian is There is basically, from the point of the what's the oligarchistic sort of outside <laughs> investor, the basic point about investing is you have choices. You, know, you, decide, you decide where to put your money. At the moment, you look at the continent, at the moment, you look at problems in Germany, you look at the problems in many other places. And actually, Britain, it's totally true. I don't think anyone who invests money anywhere in the world thinks that Brexit was a great idea. But there is, I think there's been a much quicker realisation outside Britain than there is inside it, that actually, look, it will take some other things. If you just come back from New York, you come back here, you think the 
subways safer, you think that the culture, things are cheaper. You've got, you'll see a lot of enthusiasm for people. Their immediate starting point is, well, Britain would be a good place to start. It doesn't mean, we, we are so fixated by this debate, which, which is very easy to have, is that we could have been so much better if Brexit hadn't happened. If you're looking at it from that wonderful class of people, which Adrian's decided I represent, um, then actually, if you're deciding where to put money at the moment, Britain, Britain's still got a lot of attractions, partly for the reasons that Adrian outlined, all those different sectors, which we're quite good at, but also just in comparison. You, you are still, you look at what's happened in the Netherlands, you worry about that in other countries in Europe, and you think, well, actually, this is not a bad place. I was in Asia just before. Again, the first site, if you're, if you're coming from China, you're coming from Singapore, you're coming from Hong Kong, the first place you look is here. So we do, yes, we are right to berate all the fact that we could be doing better than we are but there is still actually a degree of basic attraction. Stephanie? Yeah, yeah obviously, they say we, we are in the top two exporters of services in the world. Then you know, that has continued to grow. There's quite a lot of very you know, lucrative. It's not just, you know, we think of the sort of service sector as being kind of cheap imported labor, whatever. Of course, there is, there is some of that uh, in hospitality and other sectors, but it's, we're all, you know, it's, it is also finance, cultural industries. Journalism. Um, with a ra- journalism, <laughs> God help us. There's a, you know, there's a range of things where we could, I think, I mean, Adrian has identified the key problem that this very successful, very lucrative, not just the elite um, businesses, are, are producing, I don't know, 70% of their value added is in the southeast and then actually very close to London. So that is, that is the key challenge for any new government or, or old government is how do, if you want to double down on that, you can't suddenly become Germany. Um, but how do you make our other big cities, maybe just, just a few, you know, Birmingham or Manchester actually have some of the same success and productivity Build levels of, um, yeah, <laughs> of, of, of London, you know, and I think that's where, you know, I'm quite, I'm quite interested in the sort of decentralization agenda. I think on a lot of economic and social issues, actually, they are, they, that is the only sort of thing lever left to pull is to give more power to, to local governments who have so little of it and certainly very little power over money in this country relative to other countries. But I think even when you're talking about leveling up, you also have to be honest that this kind of growth that we're talking about is going to come from big cities, from a handful of big cities. It is not going to come from, as Boris Johnson tried to tell all these these left behind or the held back towns, we can bring jobs to your towns. You know, their, their strategy has to be based on their connectivity with a big city. And if we're kind of honest about that and then empower those cities and the people around them, you never know, could work. On that note, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you to the panelists. Thanks for listening to this bonus edition of In The City. This episode was hosted by me, Francine Lacroix. It was produced by Summer Saadi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to our co-host, Allegra Stratton, John Micklethwaite, Adrian Woolridge, and Stephanie Flanders. Hi there, it's Francine Lacroix, host of In The City. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not gonna want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend, Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment and dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. 
From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube.